0: Welcome to episode 11 of Miradas, a podcast on the current affairs, politics and cultures of Latin America, with Laurie Blair and myself, John Bartlett. This week I had the pleasure of speaking to journalist and author Vincent Bevins, a native Californian. Vincent worked for the Financial Times in London, spent six years as a Brazil correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, uh, studied for an MSC in International Political Economy at the London School of Economics, and most recently covered Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. Our conversation was framed around his new book, The Jakarta Method, a well narrative tour through the history of communism and the US covert operations undertaken to challenge its popularity around the world. The book is a chilling exploration of the US's brutal ideological massacre in the Third World and serves as an important reference for understanding how the world looks today. The passages on Chile and Brazil are particularly enlightening from a Latin American perspective. Vincent kindly sent me a review copy before he recorded the interview, which I thoroughly enjoyed and learned a huge amount while reading, and the book is out on the 19th of May and available to pre-order now. Links to what you can buy, The Jakarta Method, are included in the show description, and so is some of Vincent's other work. You'll be hearing from Laurie at the end of the show, so I hope you enjoy the interview. Right. Vincent, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you finding Brazil's uh, turbulent experience at the moment with the the coronavirus and all that's going on with the uh, the Bolsonaro administration?
1: Um, it is turbulent, that's a good word. I'm in downtown Sao Paulo where things have sort of taken a turn, a dark turn. It's, not, it's it, People on the street, obviously, you're not doing well and you can tell and then it doesn't really help to watch sort of the national news and realize that they don't really know. What's going on, either. So it's, uh, it's certainly interesting, but um, it is it is a lot of, of sort of daily stimulus that we probably don't need in this in this pandemic. Yeah,
0: in the current climate, brilliant. But it' last thing that you you uh, you needed, down there. um And I I saw that you wrote for the uh, for the New Yorker in, in June last year about the the film The Edge of Democracy. Um, and it's one of the I think the introduction you wrote that Brazil went from being a confident nation led by one of the world's most successful social movements. Uh, social democratic movements to the dizzying return of the far-right ideology behind the country's 20th century military dictatorship. Uh, I found that really interesting because obviously we'll talk about your, your book in greater depth in a moment, The Jakarta Method, uh, and the links to, to where you can buy that uh, are in the description of the episode, and it's out on the 19th of May. Uh, but you, of course you covered the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff very closely and then moved to Asia um, while Bolsonaro, feeble is really kind of taking hold, and uh, although of course you followed the, this kind of this uh, latest period very closely, and this sort of vengeful bravado-fueled kind of anti-left in all its forms, movement embodied by Bolsonaro. Uh, so, in light of this, kind of how do you read the the current situation
1: in Brazil? Well, I think that's right. So, I think that what what, what I wrote in that New York Magazine thing, I think, is luckily holds up, is that. Probably under Lula, when I first got here, Brazil had the most successful social democratic experiment in, in a large country, maybe ever, in the history of the post-colonial, quote unquote, developing world. Um, impeachment was a really big turning point, and it didn't go well for the people that organized it, um, specifically the center-right that thought that they would be able to move into power. Um, in 2018, if they got rid of Dilma in 2016, and in 2018 I, I was actually here. I was back doing book research as Bolsonaro organized his campaign, and um, it was the return of something that everybody thought was gone. Um, and I think um, he he is a new character in the sense that he engages with the internet and he really likes to be associated with the global. Um, right he really likes to be compared to Trump but he also is something that's been in Latin America's Been under the surface in Latin America for a very long time And he he really jumped out of a very specific moment in Brazil's military dictatorship, which Again very tragically was supposed to be supposed to be gone right this um the idea that the left is the threat to humanity and destroying them is the main task of a political entity it's straight out of the playbook of the 20th century, and he kind of held on to that for 30 years in Congress, shouting uh, into empty corridors and everybody sort of, you know, rolling their eyes until the entire political establishment destroyed itself between 2014 and 2017, and he just walked right into the middle. So it's, it was, it's been really a dizzying... I like, I mean, that's why I like the name of that film in both English and Portuguese. It's like, it is kind of vertiginous process. Like, you couldn't, it all, it is very dizzying and, and disorienting to to see everything that was gone, just, it, oh no, it never happened. Actually, the entire, the entire like 20, 30 year experiment with full democracy in the post-Cold War, post-colonial, quote unquote, developing world, it might have just been a blip, right? Like, who knows really what's What's the, the long term trajectory of, of Brazil? So it was definitely resonant with the things I was looking into, but it was um, very disorienting. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, sure. And of course, that sort of leads us on nicely to your, to your book, The Jakarta Method, uh, which looks at this thing, uh, the covert US operations around the world broadly uh, during the, the Cold War period. Um, which, obviously, as you rightly say, there, we're seeing. Um, uh, kind of relived to a certain extent in, in Brazil at the moment, the same sort of rhetoric, at least. And it's sort of you know it's informed by your reporting in Brazil and then in, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia with the Washington Post. Um, and you, you sent me a review copy. I really enjoyed it. It was um, you wrote very powerfully about the, the kind of U.S. approved massacres uh, that checked the spread of communism throughout the Third World. Um, you know, in many of these kind of uh, circumstances, I think personally I was only very dimly aware of. I think that was one of the things that's really interesting about it. You used some examples that. Uh, I don't think are, are hugely widely known, uh, you know, outside of kind of specific circles. Um, and you use a lot of first-hand testimony and guidance from ins- and historians, kind of combined with archival research as well. Um, so, kind of, how did you find the process then of, of, of writing this book?
1: Well, yeah. So, I think what you said is right. I had to, I tried to combine. I, I kind of I came at it with the skills that I developed, if I have any skills, uh, as a, a journalist working for about a decade around the world. And so I kind of treated it at at, at first like it was a really big story. So I was going to read everything that had already been written about it and talk to everybody that I absolutely could um, that was alive and was willing to talk about what happened and then put it into the kind of a story, the kind of a um, text that regular people would be able to, would find find sort of uh, interesting or engaging. And, like combining those things doesn't happen that much. So a lot of historians that know all of this period pr- better than I do, because you know they might maybe spend twenty or thirty years studying only Indonesian language documents, or they're Chilean or Brazilian historians. They often tend to not go out and do interviews. Um, it's the, the the especially in the U.S. like the historical practice tends to be an archival one. Um, but I really wanted to add something. Um, that didn't already exist because the, the, the academic historians are really the ones that have laid the groundwork for all this work. And so it took me probably an extra two years to find the survivors, find the ones that wanted to talk, find the ones that were definitely telling the truth, and to use that to weave into a narrative that might make sense to the average reader. And, and I, and I want to say, like, just like you said, I was only dimly aware. Like I, thought, I, I thought I was like, oh yeah, I know about U.S. Bacticos, and I know about... Uh, the bad stuff from the Cold War. But there's a lot more than I think fits into the idea we have about the 20th century. There's just, when, when you really get into it, it, it's, it was a lot more shocking than I expected. And I expected it to be bad. Um, there's, it really, keep, it just kind of kept going and going um, deeper and deeper and further to the left and further to the right. Uh, um, so, I just followed it wherever it took me basically.
0: And so you, how do you kind of characterize what you, what you did then? Were you trying to kind of collect a lot of these kind of different disciplines and uh, different kind of types of testimony? Or what was your kind of overall aim when you, were, when you set up?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was basically just trying to tell the story of what happened. I mean, it sounds very simple, but I, I kind of applied journalistic tools to do it, right? So I was just trying to figure out what has been established academically, who are the people that lived through it they can tell me what it felt like to live through it, and then put that together in... Um, in like yeah like a a general uh, something that works for a general reader so maybe to to make clear what it is is that the like the book tells the story of the US backed US assisted massacre of approximately 1 million innocent civilians in Indonesia in 1965 and this is one of the major turning points of the Cold War it might be the biggest turning point of the Cold War it was far more important than Vietnam for example it was a huge victory for the United States government and for the larger project that the West um, was undertaking which was just to build a Western allied capitalist global order that would, would not be communist. Right? Um, and I tell that story starting at the beginning of the Cold War in 1945, um, talking about what the US government was doing in that part of the world and in Latin America, talking about what the Indonesian leaders of this new nation were doing and then how they came together in quite a horrible way in 1965. And then what I do is I trace the way that that event reverberated around the world. And the most important way that it did, I found, is that other far-right movements active in the Cold War noticed how much of a success this was. They noticed how convincingly and completely the, Indonesia, the US-backed Indonesian military um, crush their enemies using mass disappearances and murder. And so in Latin America specifically, they they came up with copycat versions of this program. Jakarta, quote-unquote, was employed in Brazil and Chile, probably Central America and Argentina, to signify the reproduction of this strategy, um, being the mass extermination of unarmed leftists on the way to constructing an authoritarian capitalist Regime, and I found that this method, whether or not it was called Jakarta method or not, um, happened in more than 20 countries with U.S. backing. And I, you know, I, I ended in the end, I couldn't really avoid the conclusion that this method really shaped the way that the Cold War was won, and as a result, shaped the way that life exists now uh, um, in almost every country on Earth. And these things, I mean a lot of these programs were known so it's not like I wasn't like I discovered any of them Um, but they're not quite recognized in in mainstream English language discourse Um, there's a very small number of Indonesian experts that know what happened in Indonesia in Indonesia it is illegal to assert the truth of what happened to this day because the US backed military that took over in 1965 is still in charge so they had a sort of re democratization process but the military is still there, and the law is put on the books in 65, making it illegal to defend quote unquote communism in any way around the books. So I thought that the what I could bring to this conversation, or what I could bring to this corner of history, was this kind of lucky combination of language skills and experiences that I had, that I knew Spanish and Portuguese and Indonesian, and I could try to tell this in a global way, which might... Be more resonant um, for regular people, in which, and which, by being global, might shed light on connections that that did not appear apparent to sort of regional specialists or um, experts in one country.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. It's one of the things that you really you really notice when when reading it is you you kind of combine a lot of different disciplines. You, you kind of get this sort of anti-colonial. Uh, movement, you link it very effectively to, to anti communism as well or, or, or sorry to communism in these in these countries as well um, and I think it's fair to say as well obviously given your, your personal experiences, the link between Brazil and Indonesia isn't the first I personally think of um, right but I think you, you do that you do that very effectively it doesn't seem kind of incongruous in any way, and you also kind of follow the story of uh, of a family that moved from Indonesia to Brazil. And so, how did you how did you find that particular case study, this family, and and did you how did you find kind of making the link between your two sort of uh, beats, as it were?
1: Well, that that link was sort of the idea for the book in the first place. I I I just started thinking about the twentieth century, and I was thinking about the U.S. backed coup in nineteen sixty four in Brazil, and then the U.S. backed coup in nineteen sixty five in Indonesia, and these are now the world's fourth and fifth largest countries by population and I thought well this is really they're really similar and they happened at the same time and they both used the same justification and if you look really close at the the, the propaganda stories that were that were told by the right-wing elements in each, each country it was really similar and I, I just came up with the idea of like well you know maybe this was a real turning point in the Cold War and when I started looking at what connections there might be there was a lot more than I found there was not more than I expected um, and one thing that was really helpful to sort of a, to to make this work narratively in the book is that in Sao Paulo um, where I lived from 2010 to 2016 and I'm, I'm back all the time. I'm here now. There is a small community of Indonesians that moved here in the early 60s and they didn't know this. But the reason they moved here was because the United States backed anti-Chinese riots. Uh, as part of its strategy in Indonesia in the early 60s. So they all came here, and because they, there was a anti-Chinese um, pogroms, there was, they were experiencing racism everywhere, their villages were falling apart. So they came to Brazil, thinking they were escaping the violence of the Cold War. Then they get the coup right away in 1964, and then in 1965, the same kind of people, U.S.-trained, um, right wing military elements and, and trained literally in the same classrooms in Kansas carry out a very similar type of operation, but it's much more violent, and it means that they never really go back home after that. And funny enough, the the person who is the first person mentioned in the book, Ingi, or, or Ingiok, in, in, it was her birth name, but everyone here calls her Ingi because she's now Brazilian, she is the uh, partner of a friend's father. So I actually met her through like my friends here. Um, And then I I sort of got talking to that entire community here to try to reconstruct how it was they got here. Because a lot of a lot of times when we look at the 20th century we uh, we recognize that communism was an international thing right that there were a lot of parties that were theoretically loyal to Moscow you know, if there is a massacre in one country, we might blame communism as an entity. Um, and if there is another massacre in another country, we might also contribute it to the same ent- entity, which is international communism. For one reason or another, we really don't look at right-wing anti-communist violence in the same way. But we should, because anti-communist international activity was extremely well developed. Well-supported and extensive throughout the 20th century. So, to really understand what's going on in any of these countries in the 20th century, you have to view, you have to look at sort of, you have to look at Asia and Latin America at the same time, which is 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 rare. And you have to look at the United States and Europe and Asia and Latin America at the same time, because U.S. officials were were going back and forth between the regions. So, right after Indonesia, a bunch of U.S. officials moved to Central America and ended up um, overseeing very similar massacres. Um, one thing that the book points to, and I'm not, I'm not quite sure if it's right, is that the first ever disappearances in Asia were in, in 1965 in Indonesia. This is just one example. So the first time that, instead of just killing people in the streets, which of course humans have been doing for um, millennia, the first time they took people, let, let it be known that they were arrested, but did not let it be known that they were killed, that they were disappeared, the first time that happened in Asia as far as we know is 1965. The first time it happens in Latin America is 1966 in Guatemala. And a US official had moved from Southeast Asia to Guatemala at that exact moment. So these, these far right movements learned from each other, right? They learned that what Indonesia had done was effective. Chile supplied training to Central American death squads. Brazil helped prepare the, the Chilean military for its, for its coup. Brazil and Chile are both using Jakarta as a metaphor for mass murder at the exact same time. And, uh, yeah, in my case, it was totally random that I went from Brazil to Indonesia. I wasn't, like, looking for... I wasn't, I wasn't trying to dive deep into the worst things that my government has ever done. But it ended up being lucky or, or, or whatever that um, it kind of built this bridge that wouldn't have been built anyways because it makes no sense to do it unless you... Unless you just find yourself on it, which I, I weirdly did.
0: Yeah, sure, and um, of course, like as you, as you mentioned, with um, you know a number of these different uh, uh, massacres and disappearings and, and all sorts of uh, uh, atrocities that are kind of the subject of the book, it is of course kind of uncomfortable reading in places. Um, how do you, you sort of expect, and and how would you like the books to sort of be received? Given that you're, as you as you say, you're not kind of uncovering things um, that that weren't already known about, but you're you're giving them more of a platform and kind of putting a, a different kind of perspective on them. So, what's your, how are you kind of hoping the books received in that in that regard?
1: Um, that's a good question. I kind of hope people just read it and kind of think, figure out what they think of it. Because I don't even know what I think of it. I mean, it was like going through the process of realizing what it all really meant uh, was sort of psychologically taxing, and I still don't really know what lessons I've taken from the whole thing. So I kind of just want to lay out the story of what happened, and hopefully people pick it up and get a sense of who these people were and what happened to them and make their own sort of um, sort of decision as to what it means to them. Um, there are a couple things in there that are new, right? I, I make some discoveries, and I think there's a couple things in there that even experts would be like, oh, I didn't know that but more broadly i would i would hope that um if somebody wanted like a book to pick up about the cold war that this one would be would make as much sense as one about like white people in berlin and moscow and washington dc because i think this other half of the story about um the quote unquote developing world and the, and the losers right the real losers like the real losers of the 20th century were not really so much the Soviet Communist Party it was really the these movements in the third world that were really crushed because of their fair or unfair association with enemies of the free world or whatever so I just hope people sort of notice it and take a look and try to tell me what they think uh, what they think uh, it means
0: yeah sure and I think that I think that certainly the way I read it uh, it, it certainly does do that job um, particularly kind of the, the sort of almost potted history of, of the kind of communist movements in the, in the, third, in the third world, uh, as, as you say, kind of around, around the world at the, uh, you know, in the kind of 50s and 60s that I certainly knew almost nothing about. So that was kind of fascinating from my perspective to, to, to read about. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that really kind of comes through as well is this sort of, as I've already mentioned, the, uh, the anti-colonial uh, movement and the ties that it has with communism, which were then sort of undermined by a number of different covert activities. Um, but particularly the nineteen fifty five Bandung Conference that you, you mentioned right. as well, the sort of uh, Afro uh, Afro Asian Conference, and I think Brazil, you say, is a, was an observer there as well. It right. was something that I personally knew very little about, if, if any. Right. Um, I've kind of heard heard of it vaguely, I think. Um, so how do you how do you kind of assess this sort of anti colonial movement then nowadays? Has it, has it kind of come to a complete conclusion, or what kind of lessons can can kind of be drawn forward from
1: the point that you sort of leave the book? Well, so I'll I'll outline really quickly what what that Bandung moment was, and and what I think that they would say. So, um, most of Asia and Latin America was under, you know, colonial, brutal colonial control until right up until the end of the Second World War. It's different than Latin America, where decolonization happened much earlier. And in 1955, President Sukarno, the first leader of Indonesia, who was like sort of a a prophet of anti-colonial nationhood he was a real sort of visionary in Indonesia uh, and built the nation sort of from all of its disparate elements. In 1955 he put on a conference in in Bandung which was the Afro-Asian People's Conference Um, and it was in his words the first uh, conference of colored peoples in the history of the world, the first time there was ever a meeting of of people without white people overseeing them and this was hugely important in Africa and Asia and Latin America at the time and the United States noticed, and they didn't like it. But for those that lived through it, and I had the, the, the chance to meet a lot of these people, they, like, no one forgets when this happened. People can recite from memory the speech that he gave. This is, the, this is the moment that they came into their own. And it gave Sukarno a really big platform for 10 years until he was eventually taken down through this mass murder. So he was never a communist, but... At a, at a certain point, the Communist Party was an important part of his su- his multi-party support. So he ended up being destroyed through this mass murder that I outlined. And that was kind of the point, is that he was a, he was a troublemaker on the world stage. Um, he wanted to nationalize uh, oil in Indonesia. He was constantly at war, or not at war, but he was picking fights with, with Britain and the United States. And he came up with... Um, he came up with a lot of acronyms, but he, he was one of the, the major uh, early proponents of using, a word, uh, using the word neocolonialism. So I recount through the memories of some sort of really remarkable old people that I interviewed for this book is that when you were an in Indonesian in, in the 50s and you were looking out at the world, you, you had your independence. You thought, you thought it was real. But then the United States overthrows the government in, in Iran in 1953, Guatemala in 1954. Helps France to um, reconquer Vietnam in the '50s right, and the conclusion that he came to is that no, okay well it 's not colonialism it 's neocolonialism it 's not formal control, but really you have to do what the Western powers say, or else you're in big trouble, uh, and he didn 't know it, but the CIA tried to assass- or author- authorized his a- assassination and if you if he were alive i 'm sure that what he would say is that the world in 2020 is is still a neocolonial world and The people that I interviewed that were part of this dream of a new third world movement in the 50s and 60s, the people that I interviewed, one of the sort of more emotional parts about interviewing them was asking them, you know, what did you think the world was going to be like in the 50s and 60s? And none of them expected this, right? I mean, very few countries in this part of Asia have caught up really at all with the West in the intervening 70 years. And so I don't know what I think, but I know that if you were to ask the people that were at Bandung in 1955, they would tell you that the world we live in now is, is a neo-colonial world um, rather than a, for, a world of formal colonialism.
0: Do you think there's a need for another, another edition or something like that nowadays if, we're, if we haven't made any progress?
1: I don't know, I mean that's, you know, like I, I, I spent a lot of time you know, I did like development. You know, I did a master's at LSE. We did, de- you know, there's development. You know, this is all; these are all questions that people attack all the time. When well, you know, why hasn't any? Why have so few countries in the so-called developing world not actually developed, except in absolute terms? Because you know, technologically speaking, that's sort of given. I don't, I don't have like an easy way. I don't know, <laughs> but I would. I again, I like, I in the book I try to center those people, and I think they would say yes. They would say. The world's only going to change if we get together and sort of uh, insist on in, in reshaping the, the rules and that was the point right the, the the idea was not only to get formal independence from Europe uh, and then uh, in some cases um, some cases Britain in some cases informally Washington the idea was that they were going to come together and change the rules of the global economy which would allow them to upgrade their manufacturing capabilities and not just export raw exports and you know if you look around they all still export raw exports that never happened right and and you can see the effect of that in the pandemic right i mean chile is a good example brazil is a good example if you export commodities when a crisis hits you're screwed because you're dependent on fluctuations in in foreign exchange you're dependent on the price of commodities and like we all take that as just like you have to you know that's how it works you better if you're going to run for president of Peru, you better be good at dealing with commodity cycles, right? But um, one really nice thing about writing a historical book was like, being able to step back two or three or five paces and be like, well, is that, is that how the world has always been or needs to be, that small amount of countries import uh, all the raw materials from other countries? Um, for now, it is. But um, certainly what I tried to do is reconstruct a moment when they thought that it didn't have to be that way
0: yeah sure a bit of an unfair question pat but the um um so yeah if we just kind of yeah move the the conversations you have done there towards uh towards latin america a little bit um, you know you'll see you touch on on cuba um in the book obviously as well as the kind of you know still a a communist uh communist state uh and so you kind of with respect to us foreign policy and you know from everything you sort of you've learned throughout the process of writing the book, you know, from forward from 1954 in Guatemala and you've got 103 miles off the coast of, uh, of Florida. You have this kind of communist, uh, state, which is, it was still there. I mean, it's, right. it's an incredible kind of anomaly and, uh, Perhaps even like a sort of a failure of the of the kind of the, the Jakarta method sort of policies and things. I mean, how do you how do you view the kind of the existence of Cuba with relation to to how the U.S. tried to go about this sort of anti communist uh,
1: movement? Well, it's a it's a weird exception, right? Because it was the Bay of Pigs was not an exception in that the U.S. tried to do it. It's that they failed and then they stopped. So the Bay of Pigs was a really weird turning point for the for the Cold War in the Western Hemisphere because this was like it was totally routine that Washington would crush you if you kind of um, became a little bit too independent and Che Guevara was in was in Guatemala in 1954 and he saw what happened when Arbenz was um, overthrown with CIA Um, well the CIA basically did it. it was just overthrown by the CIA And he saw the people, the people he knew were killed. He thought he saw the people that believed in democratic socialism were killed. So he sort of drew his own lessons from that and said, "Well, you got to, you got to be hard. You got to have defense. You got to have a sort of impenetrable fortress because they're going to come for you." And like the really tragic thing, and like I think this is, it's not you know, it is kind of like not a, a. it is not, like, an uplifting lesson, and I don't even really know what to do with it. But the, the like, quote-unquote socialist regimes that survived in the 20th century were, were regimes that did this. They, like, they got hard. They got defensive. They really made sure that they were not vulnerable. And, you know, like, North Korea is, like, the most extreme example of this. China, to some extent, um, really radicalized during the Civil War. And, like, I don't think... I mean, I, 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 I don't know what Washington exactly is doing now with regard to Venezuela and Cuba and I don't really know if they know either. Um, I'd be really interested, like, because you know, we had a little bit of reopening with, 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 with Cuba, right, under Obama, and then we had this kind of strange, this Havana syndrome thing, do you remember this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which was used to sort of roll back engagement with Cuba and it's a weird I mean have you been have you been to Cuba
0: yeah I was there a couple of months ago actually I had to fly back to Chile after the uh, when the pandemic cut things short but I was there for a couple of weeks
1: yeah it's a weird it's a weird holdover like it's not and I don't think the leadership there knows exactly what their 10 year plan is but um, it was the one it was the one point where Washington came which at the time I said at the time it was totally routine to do so to come and try to overthrow somebody but it didn't work and they kind of got stuck that they didn't want to do it again because they got caught so obviously and JFK got in a big fight with the CIA over the Bay of Pigs and everyone looked bad. Um, and it's a really strange thing and as you, know, as you know Cuba functions when necessary as a sort of bogeyman for the right in in Latin America um, you know like you got it used it was like a meme for a long time in Brazil like oh, you know if you don't like if you don't like this or that well you know go to Cuba um, but I don't really know. I don't really know what what what, what function Cuba plays in relation to Latin America now. Um, it's not. I don't think it's clear really to, to the main players involved. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think it's a. I think it's a convenient foil. I think that Chile's a Chile's a really interesting example at the moment because you've um, you know you've got the the OAS saying that um, you know perhaps Cuba or Venezuela both perhaps were involved in, in what happened on the 18th of October here um, in Chile for example I mean, yeah. you know like you, you talk about this sort of defensive state but I think also there's this sort of rumoured kind of you know the offensive side of it as well you know this kind of you know if, if the US are capable of undermining communism elsewhere then Cuba and uh, Venezuela could, could perhaps be doing you know doing the opposite in other places and I think it's quite far fetched to, to reach towards the kind of the opposite extreme sometimes but um, but it's certainly interesting to see how the, the the kind of the Piñera government here and I think you, know, you say it was right in Brazil as well that people kind of bounce off the uh, uh, the Cuba and Venezuela sort of arguments to try and justify what they 're doing it 's quite convenient at times. Um, yeah, no, it works
1: very well. It works really well, and especially I mean I mean, was there any in Cuban or Venezuelan influence in the because I saw this th- theory being thrown around, and I assumed well, probably it 's not, and even if it is like whatever who, can, you know, who cares it 's probably so little that it 's purely symbolic, but it, was there any Cuban or Venezuelan mm-hmm. involvement in the um, the protests in Chile?
0: It's a good question. I'd love to know. Um, I, d- I don't think anyone particularly knows here. I think the government have, the government have reached for that p- perhaps perhaps too quickly to be, to be plausible. They reached for the, the cuba Venezuela explanation uh, to start with, but there certainly seems to have been some intelligence that there was going to be some kind of attack on the APEC conference um, uh, here in, in Santiago, which was cancelled because of the protests. Um, and I think there was there was some rumor, at least, that the uh, the, the Venezuelan or, or Cuban um, you know involvement. But again, I, I don't I don't really know what the truth to that would be.
1: So, do you know about the Rio Centro Hugh Centro bombing in uh, during the dictatorship in Brazil? The Rio Centro bombing. Was one of many times during the dictatorship when right wing elements planned false flag operations in order to justify further radicalization. So, two members of the military were gonna bomb a conference at the Hio Centro Conference Center and blame it on the left, and then use that to justify more power to their section of the military, the sort of the, the hardline torture element. And they accidentally blew themselves up. So, that's why they got caught this time. But there were many times, I mean, it's a classic tactic of, I mean, if you're, the, if you're, if you're in power and you can blame somebody else, it, it works to, to blame some kind of outside um, agitator. But in Hewis Centro, they actually got caught because they blew themselves up. Uh, and Bolsonaro, of course, the reason Bolsonaro was forced out of the military um, is most likely, well, it certainly happened in the wake of published accusations that he had planned a bombing. Um, whether or not that was the reason that's close to us whether or not he did plan the bombing but you can certainly say it's and it's very suggestive to say that it would there were published reports in the media that he planned a bombing in Rio um, that would be used by him to ask for higher salaries for the the military during the dictatorship and after that he was discharged Um, so like, it's, it's, and it's, it's a weird headspace to get into when I spend all this time in 20th century covert actions because the, notu- the notion of covert actions, the very nature, is that some very powerful entity does something secret and nobody knows what it is and everybody a bunch of makes, of, makes a bunch of guesses and they're all wrong but then 15 years later, it turns out that one of those people was right and often the one person that was right is somebody that was a wild conspiracy theorist and they were just guessing randomly. Um, but the nature of having large states employ secret, um, secrets operations around the world, which the U.S. certainly did, you know, the Soviet Union did, and who knows if Cuba did, but I'm sure if they did, it was with much less firepower. Is that it leads you down these weird rabbit holes where you're like, oh, well, how am I supposed, to, you know, how do I know anything? Is everything, uh, is everything some weird plot? But um, it makes, you know, why not? I mean, why not blame? Cuba and Venezuela, like you know, it's it's gonna work for somebody. Some 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 element of your electorate's gonna be like, oh, that works for me. You know, I don't know if you saw the. Um, did you see the blog post that Brazilian Foreign Minister Ernesto Araujo posted, uh, put up on his uh, put up in the middle of the night a couple weeks ago?
0: No, it didn't.
1: Well, he had done a um, his own very creative reading of a Slavoj, Zizek book, and he used it to come to the conclusion. That the coronavirus was being used by the globalists to usher in communism, and he he titled his blog, pro- you know, probably intentionally provocatively, "Chegoku Muna Virus," uh, the, com- the 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 communist virus is like, instead of coronavirus, it's "Kumauna Virus," uh, the communist virus is here, and like I think he's kind of trying to get attention, but he also knows like that plays, you know, like why not blame communism for the virus like I mean this has gotten out of control recently I mean in a way that I don't think you probably have over there is that you know Sergio Moro after Sergio Moro left the Bolsonaro government he's being accused of being a communist Globo which was the sort of center right TV station which the PT used to consider fascist five years ago they're now being called communists by the Bolsonaristas because they're being slightly critical of the government it just it just works you know Like they just they just throw it out there, and they probably half believe it, and they know that it will get some traction to blame some very evil conspiratorial element uh, for all of your problems. And 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 as I as I found in this book or research in this book, like this goes back to the 30s. Like the Brazilian media uh, Vargas used fake communist rebellions um, to justify dictatorial powers. You know, it's a claim, You know, like I don't, to, I don't I think that probably there's. You can make too many comparisons between uh, German fascism and every other. You know, in any far right government that comes up, but this is something. Of course, they did right. They would always have some secret plot about some dark element that they needed to to justify um, their actions. And yeah, it just works. And and what we forget about the Cold War because in the West we remember that. We got scared, right? We remember that the leaders of the United States and Western Europe, Western Europe much less so, which is ironic because they were, you know, a lot closer and s- supposedly the ones that were actually at risk of an invasion. But especially in the United States, they were very worried about that the, the Soviet Union was catching up, that the Soviet Union was getting more powerful, that they had more missiles, that they were convincing people or tricking people to support them all over the world. But we do forget that the United States was more powerful at every single point in the 20th century there was never a point of where this was an equal contest and you know if you're being cynical like it makes sense for the most powerful guy to claim that the least powerful guy is uh, a huge threat I mean you could you can you can map this onto the racial space right I mean it makes it makes sense in the UK or the US to blame foreigners for whatever problem you have because they're weaker and um, uh, it works it just works rhetorically. And I think that the kind of applying that strategy to quote unquote communism was something that was supposed to go away in, in 1990. Um, but it never went away in Indonesia, and it's come back in a big way in, in, in Brazil. Um, and it's, you know, that that, that move that Pinera made, or Piñera, I don't know if he actually said it, but sort of the Pinera sphere, was that a new development in recent Chilean politics too? To blame Venezuelan or Cuban plotting for for their for problems? Well,
0: I mean the the sort of the chile Suela idea, which is um, you know resurfaces time and again. You know, it's always this kind of um, you know vote for vote for the centre centre right and right in, in order to, to avoid us turning into another Venezuela, which has never really been a realistic possibility. Um, yeah. I mean that played a big part in in Pinera's re-election. Um, most uh, in t- oh, in 2010, I think it was the first time he got elected. The, the um rumor went around. I don't know if from him directly, but certainly was a, a big part of that. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, Chile's a really interesting example, as, as you say, because we've obviously we've got the, a, a prominent and um, you know not certainly not a meaningless communist party here with with popular, yeah, yeah. well well known politicians uh, that lead it, and um, you know there's this this kind of endless. Drive to reach for for the for the words communist or fascist to describe anybody, um, yeah. you know, slightly outside the centre of politics. I mean, you are either a communist or a fascist to people here, depending on what your views, um, right. you know, kind of what view, what kind of views you express. So, well, I just I mean, that kind of dichotomy I find really interesting. You know, it kind of ties in quite strongly with what obviously the book's about, and I just wonder kind of what you thought about that. Um, you know, kind of nowadays of how that how that really works. This sort of. Need to kind of categorize people by the extremes of the, the spectrum.
1: Well, I mean, I guess I mean, in in Chile at least, I guess, uh, communists and fascists do actually really exist, right? You get like people that will admit that on both sides, won't they? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think I think I, I, it's kind of a glib and in, in short answer to your question, but I think it's the internet. Like, we all know we have all we all live online now. Um, depending on you know. Well, the only thing that's different is which sort of app you hang out on, um, and we all kind of know that it it divides people into self-selecting categories, and it's you know certain things play well online, and I think Trump real knows really well what plays in the media and in social media. I think Bolsonaro knows what plays in social media. Demon, demonizing the other—I mean, this is kind of like such a cliche, like like lame, like think like pundit pundit guy thing to say, but like. Demonizing the other is uh, is effective, um, and in Brazil, I mean. So, what's Latin America, right? So, what is you know? This is these were like big steps back again that I really enjoyed taking. Like, what is Latin America? Well, Latin America is a collection of Western European settler colonies in 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 the Western Hemisphere. So, from like from Canada to down to Argentina, we basically have the same thing, which is white people came killed the locals, installed their own um, sort of nations. In some countries, they brought in slaves from Africa. In some countries, they brought less or none. But it's all, I mean, these are Western European um, conquests, right? I mean, the fact that people speak Portuguese or Spanish or, or English is weird to people in Indonesia, right? Like, the Indonesians that I spoke to that came to... Latin America, they're like, oh, so you guys all just speak European languages? What happened to the one what happened to your languages? And, and the, the Brazilians are like, what do you mean our languages? Like, oh, those people, yeah, we killed all them. So deep in its blood, um all of the Western Hemisphere has, I think, top down terror as a way to maintain a very um, to maintain a social order which is new and not so cohesive, right? I was going to use the word unnatural, but what's natural, right? So the United States has always had some kind of a part of the population which is permanently excluded. With with rare cases in Latin America, the indigenous population is is permanently excluded. In Brazil, you could could tell the history of Brazil as a history of slave revolts and then reactionary violence to put down the slave revolts. Um, There's always been this deep this deep instinct among the Latin American elite is that, oh, shit, the, like, the masses are getting too close to the mansion, um, and it takes different forms, you know, throughout the centuries, but it's, like, it comes back every 10, 20 years, and for the 20th century, like, the, the communism really worked for that, and in, in Brazil, there was the intentional spreading of, of rumors that they were going to come, and do all sorts of terrible things to your family in your home, and, and and it was satanic, and it was, and it was they were coming for you, right? And um, social orders like you have in Latin America, I think the elites implicitly know there's there there's some there's some instability. I think they implicitly know that things could, that that um, there is some sort of violence inherent in the system, and if you start to tell people like hey look it's coming like you you know your position you know it's not you didn't get it because you were born smarter than those other people you got it because you were born in this family um, that could be taken away and and that that is a really powerful um, that is a really powerful way to generate reaction and, and Part of that, I think, is what happened in Brazil in the last ten years. Not not all of it, I think, but um, I think that tapping into that really dark place of like fear that they're coming for me is something that plays online. So you get like sort of the worst elements of the 20th century interacting with the worst elements of the 21st century to produce Bolsonarismo. Like the all these myths, all these deep um, social insecurities about class and race mixed with WhatsApp basically um, and I guess that's sort of the, the extended answer to my the extended version of the short question is that the internet the internet interacts with some pre-existing conditions here uh, in, in, a, in a really uh, dangerous way
0: yeah definitely I think it was a really interesting case here as uh, it's it only two weeks ago now where there was a, a video that went around um, I think it was sort of you know, suspiciously, according to some, picked up by the, the far right uh, politicians from the, the UD party in Chile, um, the Democratic, Independent Democratic. Right. Um, and it was this kind of video that showed lots of this kind of this sort of dark throng of, of people storming La Moneda, burning it down. Yeah, yeah. Of, you know, gory things, you know, there was like Piñera's head on a spike and all sorts of different things like that, you know. Um, yeah. It was all kind of like, you know, they're the coming for you kind of thing. And then I think it was they basically said that it was from this um this group that no one had ever heard of before who were yeah. purportedly pr- kind of representing the sort of the, the communist uh, kind of revolutionaries that want to change Chile, basically. But it's interesting that that yeah. kind of thing still plays so heavily because I think people, you know, it's discredited in some causes and probably believed quite, um you know, quite. By, by quite a lot of other people. So I think, yeah, it's, you're right there. It certainly plays. Um, yeah. And it's, you, know, you almost don't have to change the rhetoric, really. I think this, the same things that scared people then scared people now. So
1: the, um, Yeah, that, that threat is really interesting, because in Chile, I spoke to a lot of... Because like the, the, Jakarta, the Jakarta terror method is really employed most famously in Chile from 1971 to 1973 under Allende. So I ended up talking to a lot of people who lived through that, either on the left or on the right, and it was interesting because at the time there were a small number of people on the left that were like making provocative, they were being provocative in a, in a way that was really scaring the right wing. And other elements on the left, specifically the, the Communist Party, the Communist Party was more moderate than the socialists under, uh, under Allende in many, in many cases. It was the communists that, to this day I spoke with them and they are like, oh, the socialists shouldn't have said that. You know, avanzar sin transar, Like you know, the 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 they were scaring people unnecessarily. Because if you give if you give a little bit, they really take it, um, and it works. But I mean, the, the case of Venezuela is is, 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 is maybe different than the one I wanted. To ask, what I was asking you about the blaming blaming uh, Maduro in, in, in Cuba for like actively um, engaging in like. Subversive activities in Chile because you know Venezuela like it it did happen, right? So Venezuela did go from relatively Stable and wealthy country to a mess and so to say like oh well You don't want to vote for really bad people because they might screw up the country like I think that is a credible, you know, it's 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 a relatively coherent point you can make in political um, campaigning it's another. It's a very different one to say that that country up there, which is a basket case, is like actively engaging in subversion down here in wealthy, stable Chile. And I was curious if that was a new thing, or if, or if they've been saying things like that for a very long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the idea has been around for quite a long time. I think that you know, it almost. Doesn't have to be almost doesn't have to be true from the point of view of the if they people they're trying to scare, does it? I think it's um, no. You know, it's, exactly, it, it does enough. You know, just the, the idea of it, and then any denial from Cuba or Venezuela, which probably wouldn't be forthcoming anyway, would be completely. Well, incredible. It
1: wouldn't. Oh, ah, they don't care. Yeah, they don't. they don't. I mean, well, they do all. The, I've I've seen these studies mostly done on sort of Trump supporters and like MSNBC viewers. So like MSNBC is the the really partisan Democratic. TV station in the United States, and they, the studies show time and time again, is that if you give somebody some red meat, something that like really confirms their prior political beliefs, they like it and they believe it, and it gets their brain pleasures, their pleasure centers firing. If you tell them afterwards that it was fake, they like don't care. They just they either continue to believe it or they go, oh yeah, well nevertheless something like that is true, and um, we have we live in a, a Um, technological change has advanced to the point where people can like pinpoint what exactly works perfectly on social media and what works perfectly in traditional media and like getting those centers, you know, getting those centers firing really works. Uh, It works in Brazil. And like it was a really, you know, the electoral studies of Bolsonaro's win were really interesting because that they said like it wasn't based on content. There was no, there was no project. It was a set of very specific um, resentments and hatreds and, and emotional responses that just play really well with a certain percentage of of Brazilians. And I think that um, in the United States we also have a deep, the same kinds of deep fears or insecurities that can be played upon in moments of weakness. And I think you're kind of you're kind of seeing this now. I mean, you're kind of seeing. The U.S. being like, ah, who's the bad guy to blame? Like, who can we go to war with or whatever? And China, of course, not being blameless, of course, having made mistakes um, at the beginning of this pandemic, really serves uh, a purpose which is much larger, I think, than whatever mistakes that China did make, because it's a lot easier to blame this. Some some really bad guys far away that wanted, that are that are trying to destroy you then to look around and be like oh well you know, why don't we have a health system that would be that would be useful now um, yeah
0: yeah of course yeah I think um, no you everything you touched upon there I think there's some some sort of enduring uh, lessons to be learned early, you know in the modern world I think that was kind of what you you set out to do really with the book was to kind of you know show the other side, or another part of, um, you know, kind of why the world looks as it does, and, and it, it, it certainly does do that through the book. So, um, so yeah, I think we're we're sort of running out of time, but um, thank yeah, you so no much problem. for your for your time. It's been fascinating to talk to you, and um, yeah, I, I would thoroughly I really recommend buying the book to uh, uh, to read if you if you can. It's out now. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, I think.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. Hopefully, hopefully somebody does. Uh, yeah, but okay. yeah, thanks a lot for thanks a lot for having me.
0: No worries, thanks very much.
2: Next week, you've got me, Laurie Blair, in conversation with Peruvian writer and journalist Marco Avilés. Marco is the author of several books, including the polemical No Soy Tu Cholo, which is an interesting and very personal deep dive into how race and inequality work in similar ways in both Peru and the US. So do join us then. There's just time to say thank you to Diego Complido, who's behind our logo, La Motivante, uh, who do our amazing theme tune, there's more about them on our website, moralespodcast.com. John did the fantastic editing. I made the tea. Um, do please get in touch with complaints, corrections, suggestions for interviewees, people you really want to hear on the podcast, you want to hear more from them, uh, we'll do it. Um, or if you want to support the podcast, uh, that would be great too. Uh, you can get in touch uh, using the traditional uh, snail mail uh, email thing, which is info at or you can at us on all good social media media websites uh, by using the handle at Moradaspod. Uh, from me, Laurie Blair, and from John Bartlett, thanks for listening.